The Bakari Sellers Podcast tackles the most pressing current events through conversations and interviews with high-profile guests. Building upon his experience in South Carolina government and politics and his experience as a lawyer, Sellers will talk to his guests about all topics from the world of politics. Check out the Bakari Sellers Podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Hey, everybody, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You are listening to Black on the Air, starring the aforementioned Larry Wilmore. I'm going into my Muppet voice. Sorry about that. Larry Wilmore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Fozzie. Man. I used to be able to do that better. Your voice changes as you get older, I guess. Oh, so today on the show, Sam J, a very talented uh, comedian, has a new show on HBO called Pause It's Sam J. She's very funny, very interesting. Um, and it's very a uh, different type of late night approach. Also executive produced by Prentice Penny, who ran uh, Insecure uh, during its run. Really interesting show. Had a great conversation a little a little bit ago. Hope you guys enjoy it for this Juneteenth weekend. Happy Juneteenth, everybody. Is everybody out there celebrating Juneteenth? <laughs> Let me just say this about Juneteenth, because I've been going over my feelings about Juneteenth. So a lot of people, of course, knew nothing about Juneteenth and, you know, President Trump takes credit for <laughs> for informing the world about it, according to him. Did you, did you hear what Trump said, where he said, uh, no one even knew about June, Juneteenth until I made it famous? <laughs> he's such a, he's so stupid. He left out a couple of words there. No white people really knew about Juneteenth until I decided to hold a ridiculous event on Juneteenth because I didn't know about it either. So Juneteenth, of course, and Juneteenth just became an actual holiday. Congratulations, Juneteenth. Look at you. You are out of control. It's become a national holiday, which I had no idea that anybody was pushing that hard. Like, I, I didn't know the discussions were that close, let's say, for it to be a national holiday. I know people who have those designs on it. But let me tell you how I feel about Juneteenth. So Juneteenth, of course, is in 1865 when the Black Slaves in Texas, finally find out they were emancipated. Emancipation Proclamation had been signed a couple of years earlier. News was a little slow out to Texas because people didn't want the slaves to know what was going on, right, during the Civil War. But they found out. And it's been a celebration in the South, particularly in Texas, 
for many, 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 many years. In fact, it used to be a bigger celebration than it's become, although it's gotten a second wind probably in the last 10 or so years, you know. But especially in Texas, it was a big deal. I'm The neighbor I grew up with, our neighbors, we, they were kind of, we called them our aunt and uncles, you know, they were kind of like that. They kind of had that feel, a little older. They weren't related to us, but really nice people. And they were from Texas and, you know, also my mom, her family celebrated Juneteenth growing up and it was a real big deal. And so I knew about Juneteenth when I was very young, uh, but in California, it wasn't, it wasn't that big of a deal growing up. Like we never said, what are you doing this Juneteenth? You got any plans? Like <laughs> that conversation never come. You know, when it would come around, we'd talk about it, that kind of stuff. Sometimes we'd have black eyed peas or whatever, but it was never really a big deal. It never held that much importance in my mind. I thought it was interesting, but I always associated more with, I guess, a Texas thing. That's what it always seemed like in my mind, more than anything else, you know. And I think it's been a holiday in Texas for a while, an actual holiday. I believe so. It's funny how last year the whole George Floyd thing has put a lot of lot of things in a whole different light and different perspective. And look at little Juneteenth. It became one of them. And I have different opinions about it. I wasn't like real pro making Juneteenth a national holiday. I just thought it was too easy of a thing to give, you know, like, why are we focusing on Juneteenth? You know, we should be focusing on police reform, not Juneteenth. We should be making election day a national holiday in my mind. You know, they're going to be, you know, having new national holidays. No shade, Juneteenth. Calm down. I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying. For me, I thought black people did a really good job last year of tricking white people into thinking that we were that passionate about Juneteenth. I mean, we it was good. It, you know, we liked Juneteenth. I'm not saying we didn't like it. But, you know, I don't remember marches trying to get Juneteenth to be a holiday. The way that the, the, the energy around trying to get Martin Luther King's birthday as a national holiday was completely different. I mean, people were lobbying for that. I mean, it was huge. You, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing about that. Stevie Wonder wrote the song, Happy Birthday to You. That's about Martin Luther King's birthday, for those of you that don't know. Uh, but now that it's here, I'm cool with that. You know, let's have another holiday in June. Fine. I don't know about calling it Juneteenth. You know, there was something, it's a bit parochial to me. I associate it more with Texas than anything else, I guess, in my mind. You know, I think we should call it Emancipation Day, I think would be great. And maybe it'll grow into that. Juneteenth, it feels like that's for us. You know, I don't know if I want everybody celebrating Juneteenth. It seems weird. But I think Emancipation Day is, it's a nice, I think Emancipation Day, then followed by Independence Day in the next month. I think that's a good one-two punch, honestly. And I think it's nice that Emancipation Day is the palate cleanser to, to allow to allow many people to celebrate Independence Day. Not everybody, but some of us to celebrate Independence Day, you know, given what happened in this country. As you know, Frederick Douglass, very famous speech about Independence Day being very difficult for him to celebrate it because, as we know, at that time, he was not an independent person. So, We'll see what happens with Juneteenth. I'm not against the uh, commercialization of Juneteenth. I think that really makes it a holiday once we have mattress sales and, you know, that kind of stuff. I ain't mad at that. Come at it, you know. 
that just makes it more legit in my mind. Like there's nothing precious about it in terms of other holidays. We treat all the holidays like that. I got no problem with that. Yeah. Have Juneteenth uh, be that. After a while, I don't know. Maybe there'll be new customs about uh, Juneteenth giving away, you know, exchanging gifts, things like that. <laughs> Who knows? I'm going on a Juneteenth uh, rabbit hole here. But here's the thing that's kind of on my mind today. All right. So apparently the Catholic Church has decided enough is enough. Joe Biden is out of control. How dare he support abortion when, of course, it's been law of the land since the early 1970s. And how dare he support that law of the land since the 1970s, protecting a woman's right to have agency over her own body. How dare he? We have to come up with a way to get back at Joe Biden because, you know, he's a Catholic. And so, I don't know, the bishops in the Catholic Church are, and maybe they've done this already. And I just don't understand this. I don't know where this is coming from. And they're saying, if you're a politician and they're just directing your politicians, that's why it's so blatant and so uh, so obvious. And you support abortion rights that you cannot have communion in the Catholic Church. They're basically excommunicating them in a sense, um, not not literally, not completely, but in a sense, preventing them from having communion. Communion, if you don't know, in the Catholic Church doesn't represent, by the way, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. In the Catholic Church, it actually is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Very, very, very distinct difference from representation. So if you're a politician and you show support for abortion rights, Catholic bishops are saying you are not allowed to eat Jesus's body or drink Jesus's blood. Mm -mm. Get away from the table. I don't care if it's Juneteenth celebration. You are not eating Jesus's body at this Juneteenth and you are not drinking Jesus's blood. Give me your hand. Stop it. That's your punishment. Which is so hypocritical and so ridiculous. And I mean, I don't even know where to start with this. <laughs> you know, if you if you support something that's already a law, you know, abortion law over a woman's right to choose her own, make her own product, reproductive decisions. I mean, they want what do they want? China, where the state tells women you know, what they can do with their own womb. Is, is that what the Catholic Church would rather have? I don't understand this. Where's this coming from exactly? You guys know where it's coming from. I just want you all to answer it right now as you're listening to this. And of course, they have no problem with pedophiles who are actually priests in the Catholic Church actually serving Jesus's body and serving Jesus's blood to everybody. They're actually the ones serving it to you. They got no problem with that. Nobody thought, you know, this pedophilia thing is horrible. You know, maybe the people that are doing it, well, we can't, we can't prosecute them. We can't get them out of the church, but maybe they shouldn't be able to enjoy Jesus' body and his blood anymore. Maybe we could start with that. Uh-uh. Couldn't even get that from them. But it's just crazy. And as you guys may or may not know um, that I'm Catholic, or as I say, I'm Catholic, you know, which means I'm you know, struggling to believe in the Catholic Church. I don't know, guys. I don't know if I can stay in there any longer. 
I don't know if I got it. <laughs> I know I can hear you guys right now. Larry, what the fuck are you still doing in there? Guys, it's where I started. Give me a break. This is what I grew up in. I'm trying. I'm trying my best. I'm trying. I, I want to be able to do good from within, but it's not easy. They do too many fucked up things. And of course, the cousin of that is this Texas bill, uh, the heartbeat bill on abortion. And this thing is real cynical. I only know the surface of this. That's the thing about hearing the news. You, All you hear is that the Texas bill bans abortion as early as six weeks into a woman's pregnancy, which is ridiculous. I mean, most people don't even know they're pregnant until six weeks or later or whatever. Right? Um, that experience is different for every woman. No experience of that is the same. And all they're really trying to do is really just make it as hard as possible on women who, of course, are making a very difficult decision. And it's so cynical. And it's even more cynical than I thought. So it's not really how you would imagine a strict ban. Like if you do it, you go to jail, blah, 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 like the provider or whatever. What it does is the state has kind of like, they're such fucking cowards. They're just kind of like standing back. And what they do is they allow people to sue the provider, I believe, the one providing the abortion. And that way, like Planned Parenthood at this point, they can't sue the state for passing this law because the law, the enforcement arm of this bill is made by private citizens. So it's this weird ground that they have. So in other words, if an abortion clinic performs an abortion on somebody and breaks this law, it's not like the police are coming and shutting them down. They, they are now opening themselves up to a lawsuit by a private citizen, which is how this works. I've never heard of something like this, but it's very bizarre. But what it does, it's really like a snitch law, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's set up for people to snitch or whatever, but it is so, so fucking wrong, you guys. I mean, it not only puts the government in the lives of women making this difficult choice, it puts, it allows private citizens to be engaged in it. Someone can, by what, uh, by what nefarious means, I have no idea, can find out you had an abortion and a lawsuit is underway. And how dare a private citizen get involved in that? But that's what Texas has set up. This is worse than I even thought, you guys. I mean, it's horrible. The whole goal behind all of this, of course. Oh, and by the way, the I think they put a cap on it. They would be awarded at least $10,000. So someone can actually sue you over having an abortion and or sue the provider, I suppose. Not actually sue you, but I think they sue the provider, I believe. And can walk away with $10,000 profiting off of your abortion. Congratulations, Texas. You have clusterfucked this up in a way that no one ever could have imagined. Unbelievable. And the goal, of course, is for these uh, lawsuits to go back and forth where you have something that eventually finds its way to the Supreme Court so you can have a conservative Supreme Court try to ban abortion. That is the goal. Although the Supreme Court very recently has tried to make a point of getting across that they're not as partisan as one might want them to be, with the exception of probably uh, Thomas and whoever else is on the right over there. I can't remember right now. So good luck with that. Take it to the Supreme Court. Roberts is uh, 
not to be guessed about. You know, he has proven to be his own person in things. It's kind of interesting the way the Supreme Court is operating. But let's get back to Texas. I'm this is such a fucking bullshit law, and I want to cover it in more detail later too. I'm giving you the first part of it right now. Because underneath it is cowardice in my mind. Cowardice and bullshit about it. It there's so much that is disingenuous about it. And let me tell you the biggest thing, because as you know, I believe that honorable people can have a disagreement over how they feel about abortion, right? If you feel it's immoral, you know, this, that. If you feel, hey, this has nothing to do with that, it's that. It's, you know, it's one of those messy, I call it a messy issue, you know. I don't think anybody's happy after having an abortion. They might be relieved, you know, for a different reason, you know, and even that could be stretching it, especially under rape or incest or something like that, you know. But it's not like you're trying to plan what the color of the carpet is in your house. Okay. So, but this is cowardly because it is not an intellectual argument or an intellectual exercise or an honest one. Because if they were honest, let's think about this. If the right to life people who are behind this were really honest about this and had the courage of their convictions, and if they honestly think that abortion is murder, which they say, which I can give you arguments why it's not, by the way, uh, I'll just go down that road for a second. And I'm just making the case for it, okay? If they're saying that abortion is murder, well, the way that we define murder is that you take a life, right? You take someone's life, uh, the life of a person, right? How do we define person? Well, person's life is has always been defined for as long as I can remember from the moment of birth to the moment of death. That is what we consider a life, right? If you look on every tombstone or epitaph or whatever, it is moment of birth to moment of death. That is what we consider a life. It is also how we define a person in legal terms. If you are a citizen, it is determined by your place of birth, where you were born, because people have acknowledged for millennia, that birth, uh, you become a person at birth. And by person, we mean someone who is now eligible for certain rights due to a person. Someone's protected on the, under the law for certain reasons. They are what is regarded as a person. I'm not making a biological point about person. I'm making a legal point. That is what I'm saying right now. So, that is how we have always defined person and who has rights is moment of birth to moment of death. We have never said that a person is moment of conception to moment of death. I have never seen a tombstone where it said conceived, <laughs> conceived in hotel room in 1964 and died in same hotel room. What a coincidence in 1994, you know. No one has ever measured a person's life by the moment of conception to the moment of death, because we have acknowledged as a large, large group of people that you are considered a person in the legal sense of what a person is when you are born. People on the right, they get mad when uh, people uh, will use the word fetus when describing abortion and all that. How dare you use that term? It is a child. That is a baby. You are killing a baby. Well, once again, 
we use the word baby for when that person's, I'll use the word child. Child, I think, is more accurate. You know, certainly your child is growing in your womb. But even baby is a term that people use after uh, the child is born. Those, are, those aren't necessarily interchangeable. Uh, that's why people say we're having a baby. Not we had a baby once it's conceived. Hey, we had a baby. Oh, can I see it? Well, no, it's we're, it's growing right now. It's in the womb. Oh, so you haven't had the baby. No, no, yeah, we're having a baby. I thought you said you had the baby. Well, because I measured from conception. But people do say that's my child or that, or they say that's my baby. But a lot of these are colloquialisms. I'm talking about the legal sense, right? But if they really believe that, if they honestly do believe that, and let's say that they do, because I honestly believe that they do, that they feel that it is murder. Though they're not murdering a citizen because you get citizenship rights when you're born. But, you know, they're saying that it's murder. Then why aren't they pointing the finger at the murderer? And the murderer is the person that orders the execution, and that is the woman. If you honestly believe what the fuck you were talking about, you should be passing a law putting women in jail and in prison for having an abortion, period. Because that is what's going on there. Don't try to don't try to act like that's not what's going on according to your words. If you believe that it's murder, how dare you not lock up the women that are doing the murdering? The doctor's just carrying it out. The doctor's the middleman. The doctor's the hitman. Who's the don? Who is the don that is ordering the hit? Why aren't you concerned about that don? Because you're a fucking hypocrite. Because you know if you actually did that, you would lose all support for your position. All, all support. Because people be like, what the fuck are you doing? Wait, this is what you're saying? This is the connection that you're making? No. And don't tell me, well, I have compassion for that woman. No, you don't. You don't have compassion for that woman. Why are you excluding her from this? Because it's not right. That's why. But meanwhile, you're going to try to make that person's life a fucking nightmare as much as possible by tying them up in lawsuits and all that, making their act public when it's private. The whole Roe v. Wade decision is based on privacy. It's a privacy argument. So this law is bullshit on so many levels, you guys. But the disingenuousness about the right to life crowd in this situation when it comes to the law I'm not talking about morality. I'll give people the benefit of the doubt for their own morality. Fine. I got no problem with that. But when it comes to the law and how you're treating people, don't you fucking lie to me. Don't fucking lie to me. Have the courage of your own convictions. We'll have the courage of ours. We'll say, no, (laughs) that should not be the case. But how about you stand on your own two feet and say what you really believe? Say what you're really thinking. Why do you got to hide behind here? Because no one will fucking support you. That's why. Yeah, I got more mad about this than I wanted to. Ugh, I hate this kind of shit. And it's always picking on poor women, too. That's the other thing. Always. Rich women will never be affected by this. Poor women, primarily uh, poor women of color. Let's be honest about it. There. I said it. Happy Juneteenth, everybody. <laughs> That's all I got. Uh, I will talk about this issue more. I want to have some people on to talk about it who know more about it than I do. You know, like I said, I'm just scratching the surface of it, giving you my impressions of it. And that's it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sam J. Coming right up. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. 
So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. All right, welcome back, everybody. Um, this is a Juneteenth. We got a nice little Juneteenth conversation. <laughs> I don't know why I said that, <laughs> but it, it feels appropriate because and here's one reason why I say it, because uh, this person is really mixing it up on television. I love when somebody puts something new on television. There is something new on television right now, you guys. And Sam J is at the center of it because it is called Pause with Sam J. And Sam, welcome to Black on the Air. It is a pleasure to have you here, my friend. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, man. It is so nice meeting you. You are a breath of fresh television air. <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations on the show. How does it feel? How are you feeling about it? You, you know, it's kind of an existential, you know, an out-of-body experience sometimes when you're doing yeah. a show, right? Yeah. It's a little different because, like, I've been putting things out in a pandemic, so it's not like I'm just running around, but things are just now opening up. So I'm getting like a little more like I, I've been doing stand up at the cellar and I'm hearing the crowd clap louder for me. You know, so exactly. Like, oh, exactly. I'm watching it. And that, <laughs> that feels cool. Yeah. I came home uh, yesterday. I came back to Boston and I was hanging out on a stoop with my homies and shit. And we were talking and they were just talking about how they're watching the show and how it feels like it's for niggas and it's for them. That made me feel real good because that that really was the goal of the yeah. thing. And so like, yeah, man, that's, that feels dope. Yeah, that's nice when you get that kind of feedback. Let's describe the show for everybody. It's kind of like it takes place kind of the center of the show is a, is a party where you're hanging out with friends and people like that. And you kind of start discussing a theme or a theme comes out of it. There's cutaways mm-hmm. to like sketches, interviews, things like that. But the center of the show is this party, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's based around a hang, really. Um, and that just came from mad different iterations of trying to figure out like what the show was going to be and then how it was going to be. And I just didn't want to do a death show because that didn't right. feel my style. In all honesty, it was really that simple. I was just like, I don't think I'm good behind a desk. <laughs> how am I good? And um, I, I happen to be my best when I'm drunk at a party. Passionately <laughs> <laughs> right. about some point. Right, right, right. Passionate about and I also thought it's the place where people are the most honest too. Like where they just hang and they're not worried about if they're saying the right thing because they're with friends and they're just saying what they're thinking. And I just wanted to kind of create an environment where, where that was possible. And you developed it with my boy Prentice. Yeah. Prentice, Prentice Penny. Insecure. He actually <laughs> called me last year. He was when he was developing and I I'm over at NBC uh Universal, but you know, I said I'm here, you know, if you need just any thoughts or whatever, but I had no idea that this was the thing that was <laughs> being, being germinated. I think it's really smart, Sam, that uh, what you just said, uh, there's a freedom that is associated with being able to discuss something that has informality as its DNA, mm-hmm. as opposed to as soon as you write something, people have a problem with it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, and I think yeah. as soon as you sit behind a desk, yeah. you have to be correct. Yes. You can't just say something for the sake of saying it. You can't yeah. even be wrong or maybe say something that isn't the right thing to say. As soon as you sit by a desk, there's an exalting that happens. And now you have to be correct. 
And I didn't want to have to be correct. I wanted to be able to be wrong and maybe explore something and come out the other end with a different opinion or at least sometimes even be ignorant. I just wanted it to be real. Yeah. I really love that uh, first episode. Um, was it Kooning? Was that the first Coons. one? Yeah, yeah, Coons, yeah. <laughs> Which is a term that's been around for a long time. Paul Mooney was hilarious when he was talking about Coons, by the way. But, uh, but I loved the way that you navigated uh, that episode where you were like free to be surprised by things or, you know, let things hit you unexpectedly. It's not like you had an agenda where you were trying to prove a point. You know, you were really, I love that type of conversation. What did you think of that episode? Did you have an expectation going in? Were you kind of surprised by things coming out of it? You know, I really didn't. I I was surprised by a lot of things, especially speaking with the young Black conservatives. um, I have my own ideas of what I thought that was, you know. Which you admit, too, on camera, too. Yeah, but I didn't Mm -hmm. go in with any expectation besides having a conversation, which is how I approach every interview I really look at them as conversations I just go in curious and like I I always want to talk to you I don't I'm not here to prove a point and I know for some people that bothered some people like you know I was told because I don't read reviews but I was told one of the uh, strong reviews was at least something I was said a lot was I didn't go hard enough on them and I was like that wasn't really the point that's what I was there to do I wasn't there to tell them they were thinking incorrect or this is what you need to be doing or, or any of that. I was just there to get to know them. But also they would never lecture you about that for anybody you interview on the left about something they agree with. They only lecture you about that for something they disagree with. Right. Exactly. And, and I was trying to create a space for like all kind of ideas. And especially for me, like as a black person, this is a space for, for all Fall niggas, man. Like I don't, I don't. I just feel like we got to start listening to each other and, and become a a unit. Like I'm really in that space as a person where I'm like, it's black first, and then we could infight with each other. But let's let's start to come together. I don't. What is a black conservative? It's just a black person with another idea of how to get us free. Yeah, I love that because to me, there's an imposition of who of what the world wants Black people to be, whether it's from the right or the left, whether it's white liberals thinking they know how we should be or white conservatives thinking how they think we should be. But within the Black community, it's different. You know, we can, like, this is almost a conversation we're having at the cookout. It's almost what the show is, you know, where we, there's more of a nuance in some of these differences. Yes, man, it's, there's a lot of nuance. And like that, that, that point that I made when I was talking to them, I really believe, and I'm, and I'm getting more affirmed in that belief daily of like, I'm tired of defining ourselves through white systems. Period. Right. Exactly. Why do you even have to be a conservative? Exactly. Like, why do we have to even be, I, I, I don't, why do we play, need that term? Yeah. I don't want to play no more. I'm, I've been saying on the stage at the cellar lately, yeah. but I'm like, I don't want to play with these crackers no more. I don't, I don't want yeah. to play. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> right. Well, because what it is is things get defined so hard and fast, and we lose nuance in the conversation. Like one of the biggest things, uh, like the, that right-left thing, to me, are old-fashioned ideas that just need to be thrown out because there's way too much fluidity. We're we're fine talking about gender fluidity, but nobody wants to talk about ideological fluidity. You know that you can you can 
be fluid within ideologies, especially when you're black, because we've been forced to for so long. Like the the whole issue with guns is one of those issues where many people on the left want black people to not have guns because see, you got to be for gun control. So nigga, you can have guns. How come we can't have guns? You know, you're the one that decided not to have it. How come we can't protect ourselves or have or have the the ability to make that decision ourselves? That is why do we have to just align with this shit, right? And right. it's to this place where like, and that's something that came to me surprising when talking to black conservatives that I felt, and I didn't even know I felt as much as I was feeling it talking to him. It was like, I am tired of just being a Democrat because I'm black. Right. I'm exactly. Over. I'm over exactly. And I am at this space with it where I'm like, yo, they are like kind of pimping us. You know what I mean? Like even like this, especially this last election. It's, it's kind of what political parties do. Yeah, bro. Yeah. Last election with like everything that was like going on. I feel like they didn't even try. Like they're not even trying anymore. It's like as a black person, why I'm always voting for my fucking life. I would like to they just wake up and, 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 and I imagine how white people vote. Just, you know, check my bank account and be like, I'm Republican today. I would love for it to be just that simple. But it's always do or die. And like at this point, Democrats know it. I feel like every commercial for this last campaign was just like, you don't want to be dead, do you? No, it's crazy. Democrat, you know? The fear tactics of it is crazy. I do think there is a problem with the black vote being held hostage by the Democratic Party because you kind of uh, you just have to take whatever you get, you know? if And we're limiting our ability to negotiate. Absolutely. There's no leverage. What is the leverage exactly? There's and you're only important during the election cycle. That's it. It isn't working. Like I was talking to someone and they were just like, well, but still, how can you be conservative? I said, really, how could you blame them? Being a Democrat clearly doesn't work. (laughs) It hasn't fixed the things. So at this point, who am I to to judge any decision someone's making? Yes. And not just think in terms of political parties. Like maybe the black vote should just be the black vote. And it's like, you got to win our vote. Go ahead. What do you got? <laughs> yeah. Amongst ourselves, you can be conservative. You can be whatever you think you are. But we're, we're one party. We infight amongst ourselves. And then we put up one candidate. We're like, this is our guy. And like, <laughs> like right. I, let's just like go over here. Or, or we come up with like a, a kind of electoral votes that are black votes, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> where you get you get these certain electoral votes if you uh, if you meet our standards of what we need to make our lives better. Because essentially that's what white people are doing. They're just infighting. The whole process is them infighting and then picking one white man. <laughs> it's like, OK, and then we're just playing, too. For whatever reason, it's like, but this is really their argument. Yeah. And and the other side of it, of course, is right now, historically, the Democratic Party right now in history happens to have many of the issues that we care about. So, you know, it's not easy for black people to just say, well, I'm going to leave the Democratic Party. Well, the alternative really doesn't promise, <laughs> you know, a good alternative, you know, so we're, it's kind of a trap situation, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's definitely like just feel stuck. Yeah. It, it's interesting by having these conversations, though, it 
I've always felt we need a third, not just a third party, but maybe a fourth and fifth party and open up, just bust open our whole political system. Because it is, uh, I mean, once again, gender, if we can have non-binary, why can't we, why does the political system have to be binary, you know? Like, why can't we really truly open it up to represent the way that people are evolving politically and that sort of thing? This could happen. It, it could and it should uh, how do you pick your guests for your show? Like, what is the process that you guys do? Let's talk about the actual construction of your show. <laughs> a lot of it just comes out of conversations in the writer's room. It, it's a writer's room of eight people. It's not a pen to paper writer's room. It's a lot of just talking and talking ideas and talking perspective. And when we finally like land on, okay, this is the kind of the theme we want to run around. Then we start going, like, who would be cool to talk to? And it's very general. So i a lot of it I have to give to uh, Kia Stone, who's the head of casting, because she's good at her job. Because, like, I truly just go to her and I'm like, we need to talk to studs with their titties out. That's what I uh-huh. said. Like, right. we need three studs who be wearing their titties out. And then Kia's like, all right. <laughs> and she goes out in the world and somehow finds these people. Okay, and- so I have to tell you that. Who first starts that idea? Who says, guys, I know we're doing this show, but we have to do a show. We have to do an episode about studs with their titties out. I don't know. I know you want to do an episode about voting rights, but I feel that we have to do this episode about <laughs> studs with their titties out. Who comes up with that idea? You know, it's a group thing. It's like, as a head writer, he's really good about pulling out of me what's important to me. And I think that was uh, why I wanted someone who was a close friend of mine to do that job. He's really my good friend. We've known each other for years through comedy. We've developed other things together. And I have a a great amount of trust for him and him. So, like, Langston would just go, like, what are you feeling? You know what I mean? Like, what is is moving you? What do you want to talk about? And so Three, we started we started talking about just freedom and, and black freedom and how we box ourselves in and what is that about and the whys. And then Langston was kind of like, well, what's something you always wanted to do that you're not doing? And I was like, y'all, I've always kind of wondered where my titties are. Like, I be seeing those studs and I, I see people make fun of them on Twitter or post pictures and be like, what are the hell they doing? But there's a part of me that's like, that's cool as fuck. They're actually being pretty cool. And I would like to know what that was. And then that's how we got to like, well, let's see if we can get some and talk with some, you know? Right. Like, that's just really kind of how it wow. works. Yeah, I love Langston. He's one of the funniest, uh, just the most pure funny people out there and very yeah. original. I love uh, that. Yeah. How much have you been, um, I don't know if surprised is the right word, but there's also the intersection of your queer identity and your Black identity, you know, that are at the center of this show in almost every episode, which is, I find also gives you a different perspective and you're, you're kind of uh, exposing a lot of space there that hasn't been talked about in this way on TV too. Like the whole stud thing. Like I haven't heard these conversations and I'm sure they're happening in places, but you know, I don't, I don't know if they're happening on HBO. <laughs> Honestly, man, the driver is so much me, me that mm-hmm. it's just, this is who I am. Right. It's like, this is who I am. This is the, it's truly just the life that I'm living and the things that I'm struggling with or thinking about or questioning. And like, we really just go off that, off truly like what, because I, I believe like, I always believe the world is so much smaller than you think it is, you know? So it's like, if I'm thinking about this, somebody's thinking about it. I'm not the only person 
thinking about this stuff. I'm not the only person pondering these things or having these questions or, or struggling with this concept or this idea. It, it may be very nuanced and like feel nuanced or specific because I'm speaking from a black lesbian perspective. But at the end of the day, I'm just talking about shit that we're all talking about. And I think that's why it, it works. It's just, I'm talking about it through my lens, which I don't know how not to do that because I am me, you know? Yeah. And then sometimes it kind of uh, presents a different type of conflict too, when you're talking about having children. Yeah. And, it, and, and that's like a real thing that going on in my life, you know, I'm a 39 year old woman. I haven't done it yet. It does feel like the clock's ticking. I'm also questioning, do I need to do it? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I don't. And what does that mean if I don't? And so, and when I brought it up, um, you know, the, the women in the writer's room were like all over it. We just started really yeah. like, suddenly became a writer's room where the men didn't matter. And they were kind wow. of just sitting back being like, oh, okay, I guess this is something that <laughs> is real. That's yeah. cool. You know? And so many, especially, and honestly, women who are a part of the production period are like, that's my favorite one. That's something that I've been thinking about. That's something that I've been feeling. And so I really just try to tap into like true and vulnerable things. And I do the same thing in my comedy. So it, it, it's not like a, a deviation in a way. It's just like, I just think that's where the good stuff is. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like, I feel like society's changing on that issue. I think a lot of women are reexamining their role as, you know, baby maker and how that defines them. You had a really funny sketch in that. That was, oh man, I mean, people punching babies. Can I say that? I mean, it was, it shocked me. I was like, oh shit, they went there. Wait, but let me just put it this way. Here's what you uncovered, which I find so good, is you uncovered the hostility that's underneath it. There's a lot of hostility underneath. Even when you have a child, there's hostility underneath the whole notion of child rearing and, and having kids, right? Yeah. Postpartum is real. Like shit. Absolutely. It's a lot. It's a lot, you know? And we were uh, talking about what to do. And, and that was a me pace where I was like, can we like just get a baby and like beat it up? And I wanted to blow weed smoking. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, that would have been fair. See, I would have said, yes, yes, yes. Shoot that. Let them tell us we can't do that, but shoot it. Yeah. <laughs> Someone has to spit on the baby like uh, Cameron spit on that little girl in Killer Season. Oh, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just were like, yeah, we got to do it. This is going to be the thing. When we turned in the cut, uh, we got a note from some people at HBO like, do we have to spit on the baby? And I was like, yeah, we, we actually do have to. We, yeah, yeah, we kind of do. Yeah. I mean, have you seen what this baby did, HBO? <laughs> But yeah, it was one of my favorite little little jams. It was mine it was too. Fun to do. Well, it's so subversive. I love that. You know, it's very simple too. That this baby does not necessarily represent happiness. <laughs> you know, it's not. A, there's no beacon that necessarily is behind this type of thing. Now, does that uh, seep over into your personal life when you're having that conversation on the air? How how does that happen? Yeah, I mean. Th- that actually pulled from my personal life was something that, you know, uh, at the time me and my girlfriend were discussing and like, like even her talking on, on the, the balcony is real. Like 
that we went on the kind of like, nah, that's not something we want to do. And then it did evolve where she's like, no, that's something I absolutely want to do. And I'm like, I still don't know if that's something I, I want to do. You know what I mean? And so like, oh, it's real. And I'm sure it'll, it'll be a discussion for some time, you know? Yeah, maybe one day in my mind, I might turn like 50 and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. And just be those old ass mamas. <laughs> well, these days, 50 really isn't that old anymore. I mean, people are having kids in 60 and 70. Anything's possible. It's a function if you want to be chasing, uh, chasing them that long. I feel like a party also kind of represents kind of a safe space. And a lot of people talk about safe space. Have you, have you had any issues come up where it didn't feel that way at all? Or everything's yeah. been pretty cool? You know. Not this season. How many episodes have you done? Six. Six, okay. So the last one is Friday. Oh, okay. I think what helps too is that the people there are really my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, we would be screaming at each other if the cameras weren't there. We would be doing what exactly what we're doing. They've had many. They've been to my house. We've we've hung, you know. And I really did work really hard on the production side of it to make it feel as on real as possible for them. So like, I was like, absolutely no boom mics. I was like, there cannot be a man holding microphones over people's heads. That is ridiculous and they won't be comfortable. They'll feel weird and they won't, we won't get honesty out of people because they'll be very aware. You can't make them so aware of what's going on. You know, no lighting guys in the room. They have, I, I demanded that it was like a real apartment, you know. It's very lo-fi. Yeah. The whole approach to it. Yeah. yeah, I was like, I need a real apartment. We can't do this on a set because if we do it on a set, HBO absolutely agreed. I was like, we do it on a set, then people know they're making tea. It's just weird. They need to come to an actual place. You know, we need to set the lighting up and there's no cut. I was like, I don't want to be hearing cuts and things. Like once we're in the party, we're in the party. I just got to trust me to navigate it and we'll just get everything. You know what I mean? It's two cameramen on body cams. There's no set up camera. I was like, we're not going to be positioning my friends. Never tell anyone where they should stand. And if we need to move someone, we'll move them naturally in the party. Like if we want a different setting or different vibe, we'll just be like, hey, y'all, let's go in the living room. And we'll just, you know what I mean? But it's like, let's just do this as like true and, and honest as we can. How did the party start? Do you... uh you guys start drinking first <laughs> and then the cameras come on after a certain while do the cameras come on early i mean you probably have a way more footage than you're using i'm sure the cameras come on first so they're on while i'm up there chilling and hanging and then okay. people come in we serve drinks and honestly a lot of what you see at the top we just talk about we're usually happy to see each other talk mm-hmm. shit like you would and then, uh, you know, I'm not going to give away all my secrets, but then we'll start moving. Right, right. Then you kind of introduce the topic. Yeah. yeah, we'll start moving the things and shaking the things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love how part of, to me, when I watch it, I feel like, I think this is Sam kind of interviewing herself in this party, <laughs> you know, in many ways, you know, and then when you go out in the world, you're kind of interviewing other people. It feels like, it feels like those are the two parts of the show. This is Sam's, you know, monologue almost. In, the, in a party format, and here's Sam in the world, you know, extracting mm-hmm. it from other people and stuff. Does that sound? That's, the vibe. That's yeah. the vibe. And what's wild, too, sometimes I don't even have to do anything. It just happens. Like, the baby episode, because it, it's, all, it's also who you invite, you know? 
I'm very particular about each party that I know the theme of who's in the room. That episode, Scythe, Scythe Sounds just came in because he's just a dad. He just started talking about his kid. I didn't even... He was just like, yeah, man, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, yeah, blah, blah. And we just started talking about it, you know? Yeah. How about the... We, we talked about that baby sketch. Um, that's a whole different muscle that you're pulling uh, is writing actual sketches, you know, that expresses... Are the sketches coming after these conversations or before? Before. Everything's before. The party is the party's last. The last thing. Mm-hmm. How was the sketch writing process? You started at SNL. You were a writer there for a while? For like three and a half seasons. Well, that's definitely something to talk about. <laughs> What's the biggest difference in your experience writing for a show like SNL and writing these types of sketches? Um, I can I can say nigga and do what I want. <laughs> I can make Wait, a sketch. Lauren, Lauren Michaels doesn't want you to say nigga on the show? <laughs> no, like what it is, is it's really one thing you're writing for someone else and this thing I'm writing for myself, you know, like at the end of the day, SNL is, is Lauren's vehicle. It's his thing. It's all of ours, but it's his, he's going to have the final say on what, what gets made. And this show is my show and it can be completely from my perspective. I, I, that's the biggest difference in, in my mind. Mm-hmm. How did you get started as a, as a comic, Sam? I just went to an open mic, man. I was 28 about to be 29, like right, right around December. My birthday's in January. I was feeling like a loser. I was like, man, I'm really? just doing what I want to do with my life. And what were you doing? Working bullshit jobs. I was working in a mail room at the John Hancock um, in Boston. And I was just like, man, if I, if I settle for this, I'm going to be settling this forever. Like I just, my life wasn't doing what I wanted it to do. I didn't feel like I was living up to my potential. I didn't feel like I was doing something that had purpose, just all of that kind of internal stuff was going on with me. And I, I've always wanted to do stand-up. I, it was always something that was in me. And I tried it when I was young, like 20. And then I got sick and kind of got derailed and started, you know, sick, family stuff. A lot of shit was going on. And I kind of ran to Atlanta in a lot of ways to just get away from everything and then pick it back up. But it was always like lingering. And I was afraid of it, if I'm being honest. And I was just like, hey, man, like, you only live once type shit. Like, just try it. And I was like, you know, give yourself a year. Just do it and, like, go really hard. Put everything you have into it for a year. And if you're further along than you were when you started, just put your head down and do it for another year. And just see what happens. Because, like, what else are you doing? And really, what do you have to lose? What's the worst that could possibly happen? you come back and you work at a mailroom, like you're already here. You're already at ground zero. So what do you have to lose? And I went to a mic and uh, at that mic, I got booed. Um, the first I, night? First night? First night that I got wow. my got the balls to go up. I got wow. booed. Got off the stage and there was this kid there named Justin P. Drew, who's still a friend of mine. He told me every mic in the city. And I just kept going. Do you remember what they were booing at? They didn't want comedy. It was like one of those things where it was a, an event before a comedy. And then they tried to like flip that audience into a comedy audience. Actually showed up for the comedy show. And there was a game on. It was like at a like a um, BFW like lounge. It was a terrible place all the way around. Right. It, like, there was a game on. They turned the game off and they were like, Ugh. 
So now, now they're mad. <laughs> have comedy and we will have it now, you know? <laughs> now this bitch got to come up and try to make us laugh. Think of G As soon as I said the first thing, they brought me up to this hostel room. I was first because I was just new on the scene. And as soon as I spoke in the mic, the dude was like, boo. I didn't even get like words out. God boo. Then the host came back on stage and was like, now you ain't going to do that to the sister. Made me like stand in front of the class. Oh, and man. Reintroduced me. No, no. And then I got on the mic and I was like, you know what? I'm not doing this. And I literally just didn't do it. I just like, yeah, no. And I walked away and I think they thought it was a defeat thing, but it wasn't. Uh-huh. I just, this was absolutely ridiculous. But I and then Justin was like, "Well, you want to know some more?" And I was like, "Yeah." And he told me some other ones. So I'm like, "What are you a masochist? You know, like <laughs> you die like that? Like people? That's interesting. Like I don't think most people can relate to that because many comics have had that experience. You know, uh, what is it do you think that drives somebody to do that after that kind of response? I think most people would quit after that. <sighs> a similar thing happened to me when I was starting out, and you know. I remember crying on the way home and everything, but, you know, I, we're kind of like a two-year-old. We kind of forget it because it was yesterday. And the next day, if you get a laugh, you're like, hey, this is good. <laughs> it's a sickness, man. I don't know. I, know what it, I was just like, uh, this isn't, you know what? Honestly, I was like, if you're going to do this forever, like, this is the thing. You want this. You're going to get booed. Like, people are not going to like you all the time. So get over this now. Just get over it. Get over it. Because if this is going to be the thing that gets in the way that you didn't, you didn't want it. Mm-hmm. Do you think it helped that you were a little older when you started? Like you had already had life shit happen to you as opposed to you're 18 years old trying to do this? Yeah, I think if I was 18, I'd been devastated because I, I didn't even know myself. And then to get up and try to be vulnerable and then someone just because it's a rejection of you. That's the biggest thing in comedy that hurt. Like there's no filter. It's just right. You. Being yourself and someone is like, I do not approve of who you are. And you just have to go, damn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and eat that. And if you don't have a solid foundation of you, that that can be devastating. How 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 long did it take you, or did you do this from the beginning, to really talk about yourself? Because that's not always easy. And when I mean talk about yourself, talk about the real shit, you know. For like for me, it took years for me as a stand-up to really, you know, get into myself, you know. And some people can do it like right away. And I'm amazed by that. You know, they have a connection with that instantly. What about did it take you a while or did you just say this is what I'm talking about right away? I kind of just went up and was like, yo, this is it. We gonna we mm-hmm. doing it because we doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, like rip the bandaid off. Here we go. Like, let's get into it. Yeah. So you had a real fearlessness from the beginning. I was, I was grown at that point. I had like a, a little bit of a fearlessness towards life. I was just like, a lot of shit. I, I came out the other side, you know, my mother died when I was 16. My brother went to jail when I was seven. My stepfather died when I was like 20. With dark depression. I got diagnosed with lupus and my mother has lupus. I had the same lupus she has. I was like dead in a hospital for a while. Like, and I came up the other side of all that at 28, 29, like really found myself. And once that would happen, I was just kind of like, 
what are we doing? You know, <laughs> it is what it is. This is who I am. And so I was approaching life in that way, honestly, just across the board. I was like, I'm not going to concede myself anymore. In any- I, I can definitely see that in your work where I feel like there's kind of, I mean, this, I don't want to use these words because, you know, the Juneteenth and something, but there is a liberation in your work and emancipation. This thing that is in a lot of things you talk about is about free expression and about freedom and about, you know, more so than any political aspect of it. It's really about the individual aspect of it, I think, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, man, you're hitting the nail on the head. Like, I think that's the underlying theme of this yeah. whole scene and like really what it was about for me. And it was very specific for me for Black people. Like, I want us free. And I don't know how we get free of these political systems. I don't, I don't know. I don't think that we're going to be able to vote our way to freedom, quite honestly. But I do know that if we can free this, if we can free our minds, if we can free this, then like you're out the matrix. <laughs> you're out. Right. And we start to move that shit like a grid. You know what I mean? And like, I really want that for us. I really want that for us. I thought, I had to give you guys credit. I mean, the free use of nigga on the show, which, you know, to me, I'm fully supportive of. As I remind people, I called the president my nigga in front, of, in front of the world. So I'm not against that. But I have to imagine. I mean, you guys even have nigga in Chirons, you know, in lower thirds describing people. That is hilarious, by the way, you know. Uh, in fact, I think you probably have the wrong title of the show. It should just be called Pause with this nigga. <laughs> now, Sam, come on. HBO, it's Time Warner. At the time you were doing it, I think, I think AT&T probably still owned it then. Very conservative company. They were on board with this. They never said nothing to me. Never said a word. <laughs> no. Have you gotten any pushback from the Black community itself? Let's talk about that. Yes, 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 yes. I get tons and tons of messages constantly that say that I say nigga too much that I shouldn't say it at all that uh, I'm a coon because I'm saying it in front of white people. Wow. But it doesn't really bother me. I expected it. One, I get it. I also get the sensitivity of it. But I think it's very generational, too. And for me, it was about not putting on airs or changing who I am to do this job. Because I feel like once I do that, I'm sending a message to the niggas that I grew up with who do talk. Okay? This is how I talk when I'm on my stoop. This is how I talk when I'm with my friends. I'm telling them that the way you are isn't good enough to be here. And that's not true. And I'm also signaling that if you speak that way, then you must not be intelligent. And I wanted to break that myth too of like, no, I'm an intelligent person. You can't deny that just because you don't like a word that I use. And so I did think about it. And at the end of the day, to not use it seemed to be very not authentic to who I was and not authentic to what I come from. And so I had to make a choice and I I made it. Yeah, uh, but not just in speech, but that's what I mean. But you're actually signifying it all the time too, like in your lower thirds and that type of thing. Was there any pushback to that? Like having it written on screen? No. Which which is different than just saying it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. No, no. But I do think too, like, I'm black, I'm gay. Mm -hmm. I think HBO was like, 
nigga, we don't know what this is. <laughs> like, we need to mind our business. <laughs> I love that that was a note. Nigga, we don't know what this is. Oh, okay, HBO. Thank you. We should mind our business and just let this be. Let this be. Because we we don't know. You know, they'll ask a question. They'll be like, like the, uh, the conspiracy theory video. They absolutely did not get it. And they were like, oh, this kind of feels like a non sequitur. And I was like, no, no, no. The people who need to get it, they will feel this. And they were like, you know, we're not hip. And I appreciate them for that. I appreciate them for just letting me as an artist uh, create, you know what I mean? And do, and do my thing. But for the last episode, I did decide that uh, for every nigga, I'm going to give $50 to a Black LGBTQ charity. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. They must have thousands of dollars right now, then. <laughs> Not for the whole season, just for the last episode. For the whole season, I'd be broke. But right. for the last episode, we go add them yeah. all. Have uh, where has most of the pushback from the black community been? Has have you noticed any pushback from people who are younger? Because I feel like you, you never know where people are in this. Like, so I've even seen younger people who say, "Uh, uh-uh, I don't like that. It's got to go." I think it's come across the board. I think the pushback is like. The pushback from the black community has been definitely the N-word stuff. It's also just like this general, like, should I be talking about these things with white people in the room? Energy, like, am I exposing too much? And, you know, my opinion on that is that white people are always in the room. Uh, So this idea that there's anything happening and it's just, you know, when people say that to me, I'm like, so you think white people don't listen to the Migos? You know, what are you talking about? Like, (laughs) <laughs> they're all in and through the culture. So this idea that there's some space where they're not going to exist, I just don't see that. And I don't, and I do think it's important to be authentically black and what I, with them in the room, I shouldn't have to change that. Like adjust to me. Why do I need to adjust to you? Why do I need to flip around? If there's, you know, eight black people in this room and one white person we should be able to do what we do and you and just respectful. Like what's the problem? So, I mean, I get it though. I get it. I, I just feel like it's, I'm doing a lot at once and yeah. you know, it could be hard to process. Yeah. Were the, were there any shows that you felt were harder to do uh, because of the subject matter that type of thing? Not really, not really. I, if anything, I was, most concerned maybe with the first episode because there was so much of me calling myself out in it that I was like, ah, this is a little uncomfortable, but in a good way. It was good uncomfortable. Why do you think that is such a big issue, that episode about cooning? Like, do, can you define cooning for our audience that may not exactly know what that is? Is Can you define it? I'm not sure. You can find it on this show, and I thought that was as close to the right definition I've heard is like a person of color or of a oppressed group that sells that group out for the, but the groups the majority groups approval. Yeah. It's the sells out part of it that I think is fuzzy in its definition. Yeah. It's blurry because it's like, well, what does that mean? And who gets to decide that? And who gets to decide that that's what you're doing? And like, you know, like Terry Cruz is always like a person that comes up in coon conversations. <laughs> I'm like, what if Cruz just really thinks that way? I don't know. Like, what if that, what if he believes that this is the right thing? But then it's hard because he says shit like, 
black lives, all, you know, black lives matter could turn into white lives dead. And you're like, Terry, not now, you know, baby. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know what purpose is that serving right here, right now, but he might think it's serving one. He might think he's seeing a bigger thing than we're seeing, you know, on his like Kanye shit. Who knows? I feel Candace Owens gets put into that category more for her her uh, political speech and that type. So, I mean, she's not like, she's not a tap dancer performing type of thing. Yeah. And it's like, I get it. Cause there's this level of what, what she does. That it seems to be talking down, which was very different to me than what I felt when I was talking to those black conservative kids, they were, they were very pro black. Like they said, they were pro black. Whereas I think the issue with Candace Owens, you, you don't, she seems to have a disdain for niggas. And that's, I think the bump comes in. Yeah, there is a part on that side, because I was thinking about this too, where it's almost a Black critique that's constant, that's always present there. You know, because even if you're not outwardly pro, why do you got to be a critic all the time of it? You know, right. is is what in the Candace Owens category, I, I feel that is out there a lot like that. Yeah. yeah, you start asking like, who are you doing that for? Yeah. Why are you so harsh on that? And you're not harsh with any other group. Yeah. Who's this for? As opposed to just being on the other side of an issue. Right. I wonder if we're going to get black creep, like (laughs) more blacks who are going to feel like it's okay to be on some of those other sides of the issue uh, coming up. It's going to be interesting in these next few years to see what happens, especially when you have somebody like Joe Biden as president. I think people will have more permission to have different opinions now as opposed to Trump, because you feel like you can't be anywhere near an opinion on the other side because you're going to be associated with him. Yeah, it was so wild that you just had to like ride out. It didn't. Yeah, it didn't allow for any like towing a line. This dude's out of control. So uh, getting back to Juneteenth, uh, do you have any opinions of that? That Do you think this has been... I didn't even know they were discussing this being a holiday, by the way. This this was kind of like a surprise holiday. Yeah, I didn't know either. I felt that, you know, Black people did a really good job of making white people feel guilty about not knowing what Juneteenth was. And the next thing you know, is a holiday. I think we should do that with other things. Like <laughs> we, we, should just, we should just start making up holidays. Give every Black person $800 a day. Y'all didn't know about that? We've been doing it for years. Oh, you motherfuckers are racist. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, they just passed it in Congress. Thank you, Congress. Have you guys uh, heard anything from HBO about another season? You're just doing six for this year? Six for this this season, yeah. Uh Um, No, 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 no. I'm not worried. Yeah, what other things are you interested in, uh, Sam, in terms of your creative output? Uh, now you're you're an executive producer of a show. You know you control the writing. Do you want to do more dramatic type of content, more of this type of thing? You going to do more stand up? I don't. I definitely want to do more stand up. I do want to do special for sure. I've been getting back on stage, and that's been feeling good and correct. Um, I do want to write other things. I don't know, if I know exactly what yet, or you know, I maybe produce other things. I'm just pretty open right now. I think that's the beauty of when you create something and you can see it and feel good about it is it gives you the confidence to go, maybe I can create other things, you know? So that's where I'm at. I'm just pretty open. Has this given you a different sense of empowerment than before when you having done your own show, it kind of changes you a little bit, right? Yeah. 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 It helps the confidence. Yeah. You know what I mean? It makes me think, Oh, maybe I could write a movie if that's what I wanted to do, or maybe I could 
And maybe I could do that. And so, yeah, for sure. You, you put together your own product and then really see it come together. And especially because the concept is so different and, and, and not in anything that I've seen, it just feels like, Oh, I can shoot some big shots and I'll be all right. Well, Sam, it's been so great talking to you. I can't wait to see the next things that you do. You know, I just love how original your voice is, you know, and just speaking from that place. Any, I would love if you have a lot of people who are just, starting out who've been in your 28 year old position when you were at that job, you know, trying to figure out their life. You know, I get people like that listen to this podcast. What do you have any words of wisdom for them or advice or, or anything you want to say to some of those people? I would just say, trust yourself and try things. Mm -hmm. And just go with that. Yeah. Let it take you where it takes you. Yeah. Wherever it does. All right. Even if it's titties out on the boulevard. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe that could be the next holiday. We could make baby feel guilty that that's not a holiday. <laughs> that sounds good. Well, Sam J is the one who said it, you guys, not me. So that's what we got. That's going to be the holiday. Uh, but pause with Sam J, you guys, at HBO. You will really enjoy this show. It's so interesting. It's very provocative. I love the format. It's kind of a if Henry Louis Gates was doing Finding Your Roots with this show, it's like Playboy After Dark was kind of like uh, <laughs> that show. Hugh Hefner was having a party. He had, he'd have people like Ella Fitzgerald on and Sammy Davis Jr. He had a lot of Black performers he presented on television. For sure. For sure. I give him credit for like putting Black people on television back then when, you know, there wasn't a, a lot of spaces for them, you know. Yeah. Was, um, uh, all that kind of stuff. But best of luck with the show. Um, hope it does well and thank you so much for being here thank you Larry this was dope I appreciate it alright Sam